And today we'll be looking at verses 7 to 11. It says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Uh, What an incredible promise in this passage. Ask and it will be given to you. Everyone who asks receives. This is an incredible promise. But sometimes that promise hits up against real life. And sometimes, you know, we see this promise and it doesn't match with our experience. About 10 years ago, uh, my uncle was in the hospital. And uh, despite our prayers for him, his family praying for him for years, he struggled with drug addiction. And at this time, he was kind of uh, dealing with several different health difficulties and it wasn't looking good for him. A couple people from a local church came and prayed for him, and and the one person uh, triumphantly proclaimed, you're going to be healed. Soon you'll be out of here. A few days later, he passed away. An atheist makes a bargain with God. His girlfriend had come down with cancer and said, "If, if you heal her, then I'll become a Christian. He prayed. He prayed. Passed away. Young lady prays for her marriage for years, prays that God would be the center of their marriage, and yet her husband finds another love interest, leaves her. Woman prays to be married, single woman prays to be married for years and years, and yet she remains single. A couple struggles with infertility, and despite their prayers, they're not given a child. It seems like sometimes we ask and we don't receive. It seems like not everyone who asks receives. And so this passage kind of hits us with real life, and then what do we do with this? And so then we kind of look at the rest of Scripture and kind of have this theology of Scripture of like sometimes uh, why are there reasons why God doesn't answer specific requests? One reason is, you know, maybe we don't have faith. We know that without faith it's impossible to please God. Uh, James 1.6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So, so maybe it's a lack of faith. Maybe uh, the person asks with the wrong motives. James uh, 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Could be the person is dealing with unconfessed sin. Uh, um, Psalm 66, 18, David says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And, and so we come up with these qualifiers of reasons why God might not answer a specific request. And, and sometimes, you know, maybe we meet these qualifiers. It's like we have faith. We don't have any un- unconfessed sin. It, you know, it's something that's good that we're praying for. Uh, we're not doubting. We're asking with the right motives, and still God doesn't answer that specific request. And so then we say, well, it must not be in God's will. That means he must have a bigger plan. Now, when it comes to kind of a theology of prayer and how we think about prayer, I think that's kind of a good theology for why he answers specific requests and maybe doesn't answer specific requests. But I don't think that's what this passage is about. 
I think if we read that into this passage, I think we miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Because we read this passage and we say, ask and it will be given to you. But he's not talking about everybody. It's like, you know, there's all these qualifications of, of what you have to do for your request to be heard, for you to receive an answer. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And we kind of add these qualifiers and kind of, I think sometimes we read our theology into this passage. And not that the theology is wrong. I think it's correct and, you know, why God sometimes chooses not to answer specific requests in the way that we'd like him to. But I think if we do that, we're missing what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about that in this passage. I believe that Jesus' instructions in this passage are different. So how do we deal with these unanswered prayers or or prayers that seem to go unanswered? Well, I think Jesus is talking more about the heart of God than the content of our prayers. You see, in the ancient world, uh, when it came to prayer, especially in pagan cultures and and praying to pagan deities, Prayer was seen largely as a negotiation, like you had to persuade or convince a god to do something for you. Or maybe you would make a pledge to do something for this god so that they would, you know, do something for you. And the gods were often kind of perceived as being like humans, like they have things that they want, you have things that you want, and you have to do something for them if they're going to do something for you. Uh, You can kind of see this mindset in an ancient Akkadian prayer, Uh, just as an example, it goes like this said, to my lord Amram, the Amorite family god, whose command is heard before Shamash, high god of justice, speak. Thus says Artem, which means slave, your servant, with men you created me and caused me to pass unharmed on the street. Moreover, I would bring you a sheep offering yearly and offer it to your honored divinity. Now the enemy has overcome me so that I am a poor man. My brothers did not come to my aid. If... Raise me from the bed I'm lying on, that I may bring a lavish sheep offering and come before your divinity. May my family not be dismissed. Those who look upon me hereby submit this petition to your beautiful divinity. And, and so you see in this, in this prayer, like flattery, like you, beautiful divinity, and this, this uh, kind of promise, like if you save me, if you rescue me, if you act on my behalf, then I'm going to uh, give you these sacrifices each year and bring these sheep to you. And I'm going to give you something. So, you know, if you answer my prayer, you're going to get something out of it. And so that's kind of the context of how many people viewed prayer. And sometimes even people kind of viewed that in relationship to the true God as well. But Jesus says something very different in this passage. Jesus says, all you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask. And I think what he's saying is that God's heart is already towards us. If we're in Christ, God's heart is already towards us. His yes is already assured. Now, this isn't a flippant request. It's, uh, the, the request here, the, the asking, the seeking, the knocking, they're in the present tense, uh, probably indicating a persistent or perhaps even a continual asking, seeking, or knocking. So it's not just simply a flippant asking, seeking, or knocking. It's a persistent asking. And, and it doesn't mean that God is going to answer every specific request that we have in the way that we'd like it to be, uh, to be answered doesn't mean that we just get what we want, but it does mean that God's heart is always towards us. That when we ask him, it kind of places us in the sphere of God's yes, so to speak. It places us in the sphere of God's favor. So let's say my son asks me, he comes up to me and says, Dad, I'm hungry. How am I going to respond to that request? Yes. It's always going to be yes. I mean, I love my son. 
Part of my job as a father is, going to, is caring for my son. So he, has, he never has to worry, like, maybe dad is going to change his mind. Like, maybe when I ask for a sandwich, he's going to hand me a stone, and I won't have anything to eat. He never has to wonder, well, maybe, God, maybe dad, you know, maybe he's going to hurt me. Like, maybe when I ask for a sandwich, he's going to give me a serpent that's going to sting me. Never has to wonder that because my yes is already on the table. My care for him is sure. Now, that doesn't mean that everything he asks he's going to get. If this happens, sometimes he'll ask, Dad, can I have some suckers for, for dinner? Like, no. I know that you're hungry, but I'm not going to give you suckers for dinner. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to feed you, give you what you need. And the same thing is true with God. God doesn't answer our specific requests in the way that we might like him to answer, but he, he answers them in accordance with what's best for us. And Jesus says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so the Father in heaven will give good gifts to those who ask him. I mean, I'm an imperfect, sinful father, and you know, there's some really bad dudes who care for their children, provide for their children's physical needs. And Jesus says, you know, if, if you can do that, if you know how to do that, how much more the Father in heaven who is infinitely good, infinitely wise, how much more will he give to those who ask him? And so I think this passage shows us a few things. The first thing I think it shows us is if we want God's power in our lives, we need to ask. We need to come to him at a, with a place, at a place of dependence. And as Christians, sometimes we get so caught up in the form of prayer. It's like, how should I pray? What should be the content of my prayer? And, and those things are important considerations. But I think the most important thing is that we come to God and ask. That we show that childlike dependence. That we say, God, I need you. We come that, with that kind of dependence, that kind of uh, desire to hear from God. And then as, as we're asking, God shapes that outcome. But oftentimes we try to do it ourselves. Uh, my son is, is type A personality, has kind of perfectionistic tendencies. And uh, as, you know, as he's growing up, and it used to happen a lot more, not as much now. But oftentimes, you know, we'd be in the other room, the living room, and he would be playing in his room. And, you know, everything would be going well. It was just kind of quiet. He's just kind of talking and just playing with, with his toys. And then you'd hear, like, no. And then you might hear something being thrown or smashed around the room. And then you'd run in there and be like, what's happening? And he would be like, I, like, I'm trying to get this animal to stand up and it won't stand up. Or I'm trying to open this and I can't get it open. And what we kept telling him was, you don't have to throw things. You don't have to get angry. All you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask and we'll help you. And now he's getting a little bit better with that. Now when he starts to get frustrated, a lot of times he'll say, Mom, Dad, I need you. I need you. Sometimes we do the same thing. We try to do it ourselves, and then we get frustrated when it doesn't work out the way that we want it to work out. And God is like, all you got to do is ask. All you got to do is ask, and I'm going to come. I'm going to move. I'm going to meet you where you're at. As believers, we often talk about this question of how do we deal with unanswered prayer? And for believers, if we're coming to God in sincerity with a pure heart, I don't think there's anything, any such thing as an unanswered prayer. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer for God's children. God's going to answer. He might not answer in the way that we like, but he's going to answer. He's, his heart is already towards us. We never have to convince him that 
He needs to care for us. We never have to convince him to love us. His yes is already on the table. He's going to answer our request to him. Think about Jesus who prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. He prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, was that an unanswered prayer? No, it was answered. But the answer was not the answer that Jesus might have liked. The answer was, no, this is the only way. The world needs a Savior. And the only way that you can be the Savior is to die. So sometimes we don't get the answers that we want, but it doesn't mean that God doesn't care for us. And we don't need to convince him of Uh, to love us, that love was proven in the cross. And so this passage shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the heart of the Father is turned towards his children. And this is incredible comfort to us, especially for those of us who are going through difficult times. Because it's a reminder that even when we don't see God's hand, we can hold on to God's heart. Even when we don't see him moving, if we don't see him answering the way that we would hope that he would answer, we can hold on to the fact that he hasn't forgotten about us. He is not silent. He is not absent. He is working. He is answering our prayer in accordance with our good and his glory. And so we can hold on to that no matter what we're facing in our life, that God's heart is turned towards us. His yes is already on the table. Pastor Tim Keller shares a story that kind of illustrates this. He says this, I prayed for an entire year about a girl I was dating and wanted to marry, but she wanted out of the relationship. All year I prayed, Lord, don't let her break up with me. Of course, in hindsight, it was, it was the wrong girl. I actually did what I could do to help God with the prayer because one summer, near the end of the relationship, I got in a location that made it easier to see her. I was saying, Lord, I'm making this as easy as possible for you. I've asked you for this, and I've even taken the geographical distance away. But as I look back, God was saying, son, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything I know. God answers us. He always answers us in accordance with his will, in accordance with our good. His answer is always yes. It's just not yes in the way that we might want him to answer it. But his care, his concern for us never changes. I love how 2 Corinthians 1, 19-22 puts it. Paul says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God's heart is towards us. All we have to do is ask. And if we want God's power in our life, we need to ask. We need to come to a place of dependence. But I think this shows us something different. He doesn't just say ask. He also says seek. Seek and you will find. If we want to experience God's presence, we need to seek God's heart. We live in a culture where it's uh, where we want God's presence, but we don't often seek God's presence. That is, we want to feel close to God, but we often seek other things. We seek a career. We seek a relationship. That's where we put our time. We seek out financial security, and oftentimes we don't seek after God. Perhaps a few moments in his word, and if we don't feel his presence, then maybe we move on to something else. But God calls us to seek him with all of our hearts. 
to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we'll never have a, a good relationship with him if we're not intentional. We'll never feel his presence in our life if we're not investing the time that we need to pursue that relationship. Uh, Thomas Merton kind of shares what it might look like to uh, seek after God. And I share this, uh, what he says here, not as necessarily the prescription that all of us need to do, but just as an example of how one might follow after God, seek after the heart of God. He says, those who love God should attempt to preserve or create an atmosphere in which he can be found. Christians should have quiet homes. Throw out the television if necessary. Not everybody, but those who take this sort of thing seriously. Radios are useless. Stay away from the movies. I was going to say as a penance, but it would seem to me uh, to be rather than a, pl a pleasure than a penance to stay away. Let those who can stand a little silence find other people who like silence and create silence and peace for one another. When you gain this interior silence, you can carry it around with you in the world and pray everywhere. It is absurd to talk about interior silence when there's no exterior silence. Again, I'm not saying that we need to put all those things into practice. Maybe some of us do, but that's a picture of what it looks like to seek the heart of God. You know, we seek other things. We put effort and, and emphasis into other things, but oftentimes our relationship with God is neglected. There's a story about a, a famous rabbi once told, I think I've told it before, um, it's Story goes like this. There's a rabbi whose grandson is playing hide-and-seek, and, seek, and uh, he goes in, in hides, and he waits for his friend to come and find him. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. Finally, he leaves his hiding spot, and he is just devastated to learn that his friend isn't even looking for him. His friend's just kind of given up. So he goes to uh, his grandfather, crying, the rabbi also began to weep and said, that's the way God acts. I hide, but nobody wants to look for me. Oftentimes we don't put emphasis on our relationship with God. We don't seek him with all of our hearts. And yet in Christ we have the promise when we do, he's going to move towards us. We will find him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So, if we want to experience God's presence, we need to seek his heart. Valentine's Day is coming up on Tuesday, um, and me and my wife are planning on going out for dinner. And uh, let's say we go out for dinner, and, you know, we talk for about five minutes about kind of everyday things that are happening in our life. You know, we talk about things that are happening with Paul. We talk about, you know, just kind of the logistics of the week. And then after five minutes, I take out my phone, put it on the table, and start watching a basketball game. And then she asked me, so what, what, are you, what are you doing? Why are you watching a basketball game? And I said, well, didn't we talk about everything we needed to talk about? Like we, we covered the week, didn't we? And in a sense, I would be right in the sense that like if this was a business relationship, there was nothing else we had to cover. But we're going on a date not so that we can just exchange information and, you know, kind of figure out a game plan. We're going on the date to seek each other's hearts. And as we look in the Scripture uh, our relationship with God is not a business relationship. It's not described as a business relationship. It's described as family relationship. That we're the children of God and we can cry out to God. We're the bride of Christ. Christ is the, the bridegroom. And so it's not a business relationship. It's about seeking the heart of God. It's not simply about sharing information with him. It's about being with him. Seeking his heart. 
It's funny, you know, how often, you know, our relationship, our human relationships kind of are a picture and point to our relationship with God. Uh, a few years ago, uh, UCLA did a study of married couples, and they wanted to ask the question, what does commitment in marriage look like? And so they studied um, 172 married couples over their first 11 years of marriage, and they found some interesting things about what it means to say, I'm committed to a relationship. Uh, the co-author, Benjamin Carney, professor of psychology, said this, the first meaning of what it means to be committed is this, I really like this relationship and want it to continue. So that's the first kind of commitment. But there's also a deeper level of commitment that they reported. And it's a much better predictor of lower divorce rates and fewer problems in marriage. Another author, Thomas Bradbury, said this, it's easy to be committed to your relationship when it's going well. As a relationship changes, however, shouldn't you say at some point something like this, I'm committed to make this relationship. I'm committed to this relationship, but it's not going very well. I need to have some resolve, make some sacrifices, and take some steps. I need to take, I need to take these uh, to move this relationship f- moving forward. It's not just that I like the relationship, which is true, but I'm going to step up and take active steps to maintain this relationship, even if it means I'm not going to get my way in certain areas. This, Bradbury says, is the other kind of commitment. The difference between I like this relationship and I'm committed to it, and I'm committed to doing what it takes to make this this relationship work. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many Christians are in the first camp. It's like we're committed to Christ, we like our relationship with Christ, but we're not committed in the second sense. We're not doing what is necessary to develop that relationship, to grow that relationship in all that God intended it to be. And so that's the second thing Jesus shows us. If we want God's presence, we need to seek God's heart. And there's a final thing I think we can learn from this passage, and that is if we want God's direction, we need to knock on the doors in front of us. If we want God's direction, we need to knock on the doors in front of us. One of the things that believers tend to pray about the most and a question that often comes up to me is, you know, what's God's will in my life? What would God have me do? And it's a perfectly valid question. But sometimes, you know, we talk about kind of waiting for God's directions. And there's sometimes, you know, people will wait for uh, weeks or months or years kind of waiting to hear a word from God. You know, sometimes people will do this with churches where they're kind of hop from different church to different church, uh, never being involved in community, never serving, and, and they're waiting for some special word from God. The reality is... Often God doesn't speak with a voice from heaven. He doesn't give us bright lights telling us, you know, exactly where we should be going. He gives us kind of indications that maybe he's moving in a certain direction. And then we need to knock on the door. And when Jesus is talking about knocking on the door, he's probably talking about persistence in prayer. Okay, God, maybe I feel like this is something that you're leading me to do. I'm praying and, and, and and kind of knocking on this door, seeing if it's a door that you're going to open. Being persistent, trusting in God's will. Sometimes we think have this idea that if we're following after the will of God, it means that things are going to go smoothly and there's not going to be any opposition. But the opposite is true. If you're following after God, there's going to be opposition. And there's going to be doors that are closed. Now, I think about Abraham. God called Abraham to become a great nation, but there was a door that was shut. He was old. He didn't have any children. His wife was past childbearing years. 
There's a door shut. Israel and Egypt was called to freedom, but there was a door that was shut. Pharaoh had hemmed them in. Pharaoh uh, was oppressive. Pharaoh was kind of the, the superpower of the ancient world, and he was keeping them under bondage. Door that was shut. The Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, but there's giants in the land, people who are much stronger, much more powerful than they are. There's a door that's shut. David is supposed to become king. First, there's a giant standing in his way, a giant that's surrounding Israel. And then after the giant is defeated, there's a king who wants to destroy him, who wants to kill him. There's a door that's shut. Jesus, son of God, comes to the earth. He's the king who's supposed to reign forever. But he's crucified. He dies. And the door of the tomb has been shut. Praise God that we serve a God who opens doors. Praise the Lord that he opens the doors in front of us. Opposition is simply an opportunity for God to move. God opens doors. And so we knock, it does, we knock and God opens doors. It doesn't mean that he's going to open the door that's in front of us. Sometimes he'll open up a different door. You know, we'll be knocking in one place and God's like, okay, here's this other door. Go through this door right now. And sometimes the interesting thing is it doesn't mean that we stop knocking on that door. You know, maybe God wants us to keep praying, keep knocking on that door. And maybe one day he is going to open it or not. But when we knock on that door, when we persisted in prayer, God's going to open opportunities. He's going to open the doors in front of us to lead us to the place that he has for us. Obstacles are simply doors that God hasn't opened yet. Obstacles are simply doors that God hasn't opened yet. And so he calls us to persistence and prayer. He calls us to knock on the doors in front of us and seeking God's direction. So again, to kind of bring it all together, if we want God's power in our lives, we need to ask him. If we want God's presence in our lives, we need to seek him. If we want God's direction, we need to knock on the doors in front of us. In this passage, we see an incredible invitation to ask, to seek, and to knock. But more so than even being an invitation, it's first and foremost a declaration. A declaration of the Father's heart towards us. That when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, God is going to come running towards us. God is ready and willing to move and to answer. And it's a comfort that even when we don't see his hand, we can hold on to his heart. His yes is always on the table. His heart is towards us. When we ask him, when we seek him, when we knock, he will move. He will answer us. He will direct us. I'd like to close by reading Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 11 to 14. And as we read this passage, the circumstances of when it was written, it's the Old Testament, it was written to Israel, it was in exile, and the circumstances are different in a way than our circumstances. But the thing that's exactly the same is God's heart for his people. God's heart for his people never changes. And while we might not be Israel in exile, we are believers in exile, waiting for the king to return and for us to enter into heaven. And so as I read these words, read these words as if, if you are a believer, that God is speaking these words to you and over your life, because I believe that's the case. Jeremiah says this, recording the words of God. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare 
not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Circumstances change, but God's heart doesn't. His heart is always towards his people. And even when we don't see his hand, we live in a broken world, a world where there's illnesses, a world where there's wars and rumors of wars. Even when we don't see his hand, we can trust his heart, knowing that he cares about us, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he'll never leave us or forsake us, and knowing when we move towards him, he's going to answer and move towards us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you teach us what it looks like to be a good father, a father who cares for his children. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to persuade you to love us. We don't have to try to twist your arm. We don't have to try to uh, promise things so that you'll answer us. We thank you that your heart is already turned towards us because of the cross and what you've done in Christ. Lord, help us to be a people of prayer, a people of dependence. Help us to realize every hour of every day just how much we need you. Lord, as we live our lives in everything that we do, may your spirit empower us. May your spirit guide us. May our, your spirit direct us. And Lord, give us the courage to take the steps that we need to ask, to realize our dependence, to seek you, to put our relationship with you first above any other relationship or any other thing that's in our lives, and to knock on the doors that are in front of us, knowing that you'll answer, knowing that Everyone who asks receives. That when we seek, we'll find. And when we knock, doors will be open to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you are in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.